uh, his work. And part of that is being able to talk about the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel. And uh, if you're anything like me, that actually can be quite a challenge. It's one thing to kind of come here and talk with other uh, fellow uh, Christians about the message of Christ. It's another thing, maybe in your place of work, in your neighborhood, with family, with friends, uh, to be able to winsomely and clearly talk about the message of Christ. Um, we don't just come at this naturally. It's something we learn and grow in. So this is an opportunity to, to learn, to develop, to grow. And so it's a training, uh, nine to four all day. And uh, what's kind of cool is you're gonna get to rub elbows, uh, not just with people from this church, but from other uh, area churches uh, in New England. And so a number of other churches are coming and uh, we'll get to learn together and grow. So I encourage you to put that on the calendar and uh, I think the food will be pretty good too. So uh, come on up for that. All right, we're starting a new uh, preaching series today. Um, we did a mini-series for two weeks in January, Evangelical Citizens. Now we're moving into the book of Daniel, the first six chapters in the Old Testament book of Daniel. And we're considering this theme, living faithfully in a secular culture. So in some ways, this book helps uh, expand upon some of the principles we are considering uh, in the mini-series, Evangelical Citizens. So all year, uh, what's on the, on the uh, chalkboard over here, it's kind of going to be kind of our theme for the year. Our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, we as followers of Jesus Christ are citizens of the kingdom of God, and that citizenship shapes how we live in the kingdoms of this world. And so we're going to get a great picture through the book of Daniel about how this works itself out. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me, and I'm going to read our passage from Daniel chapter 1. Um, the text will not be on the screen. It's uh, just all of chapter 1. It's a great story. So I encourage you to listen to it as a story. All right, Daniel chapter 1. I'll listen to the words of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the ch his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them these names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days, and let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat of the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner and tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate of the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. 
And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? God, we thank you for giving us uh, your word. Uh, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Uh, it gives us wisdom, uh, guiding us to who you are, uh, guiding us in how we are to live, and mostly how we can be redeemed in Jesus Christ. Thank you for this. So Lord, I pray today uh, that you would teach us uh, through your word and by your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Well, this past week, um, I had a meeting down in the Boston area, uh, actually in Cambridge, and so I found myself driving uh, around uh, the buildings of Harvard. Uh, very old buildings, historic, beautiful to look at. And I really enjoyed kind of looking around uh, the Harvard campus. And one of the things that struck me as I drove around the campus was that on these old buildings, a, a number of them had inscriptions carved uh, over the thresholds. And these inscriptions were from the scriptures. Uh, one of them was the, was the verse, What is man that you are mindful of him? Another one was, um, open ye the gates, that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. These verses of scripture over these places of higher learning. And that's because when Harvard was founded back in the 1600s, you know, part of the original charter of this school was that this would be a place where the knowledge of God would be made known. Uh, listen to the actual words in the original charter. It said, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life. That is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. I mean, talk about a substantial statement, anchoring uh, education in the larger principles of the Word of God. Now, um, those that step foot on the Harvard campus today don't have expectation that that would be the outcome of their education today. Now, Harvard is no longer a place of religious learning in that manner. Uh, it's a very secular institution. And our, our nation as a whole is very different from the time in which Harvard was founded. We live in, in an increasingly secular uh, culture. Now, if you look at history, uh, things have ebbed and flowed. There have been seasons where we as a society have been very religious. Church attendance has been way up in times when church attendance has been way down. There have been periods of awakenings and then periods of decline. But right now, as you look at all the stats of uh, a spiritual life in the United States of America, it's quite evident that we live in a very secular environment. Church attendance is way down. The number of people who say they believe in God is way down. And so people have many different reactions when they look at our history and our present-day culture. For some people, they look at that and think, man, I wish we could be today what we were back then. I wish new places of, of learning were being built with Bible verses being inscribed on the outside of buildings. I want to be in a more overtly, outwardly religious culture. Others say, no, 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 no. We, we want a secular culture. We want to be a place where all kinds of different ideas can be considered, but we kind of are keeping religious life separate from the rest of life. So many people argue about how should we function in this world that we're in today, our culture today. In particular, what I want us to consider is how should followers of Jesus respond to the increasingly secular culture we find ourselves living in? What does it mean to be a faithful follower of Jesus in an increasingly secular culture? Daniel is a wonderful story to help us wrestle with that question. And that's what we're, we're going to do over the next six weeks. Let me start with a little bit of a history, kind of give you the context of Daniel. Uh, the book of Daniel tells the story of uh, four people, focusing mostly on one of them, but Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were young Jewish men uh, who had grown up in Jerusalem, but are now living in Babylon. Uh, see, around 600 B.C., the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem. They laid siege and conquered the city. Uh, they desecrated the temple, and then they took people from Jerusalem to, to live and to work in Babylon. They didn't just want to conquer uh, uh, the, um, Jerusalem. They wanted to uh, assimilate Jerusalem. They wanted Jewish culture gone. 
So they could do that by bringing the best and the brightest to Babylon to be educated. And so that's what they did. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were all members of uh, the noble or royal families. They were the, the young, st- uh, smart, and attractive um, uh, people of, of Israel. Um, these are the guys that you know, probably are making it into Harvard. Uh, they have a lot going for them. And so they are then brought to Babylon where they're sent to university. Uh, they're supposed to learn the language, the literature, and the culture of the Babylonians. The goal being to assimilate these young Jewish men into Babylonian culture. And this is seen in the new names that are given uh, to these four men by, uh, by the people that, that took them. Uh, to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar was given. Uh, then to uh, then you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I was listening to a pastor this week, and he just gave them shorthand names. Uh, Daniel, Rakshak, and Benny. So I'll just refer to them that way too. All right, Daniel, Rakshak, and Benny. Now, just imagine the situation for these four young guys. Imagine you're one of them. Um, you're living in, a, uh, in your hometown. Uh, you have your way of life. Um, you have all the culture that you are used to. And then you are forcibly removed from your homeland, from your culture, from your family, and you are brought into a new land. And in this new land, no longer are you living in a culture that had what your old culture had. Your old culture was outwardly religious. Jerusalem was a very outwardly religious city. I mean, sure, God's people didn't do a very good job keeping God's law in actuality, but outwardly, we have the temple there. Um, They had a calendar filled with religious holidays. Uh, They had public prayer. Uh, They had scriptures being regularly spoken about publicly. So outwardly, it was a very culturally religious place. And then you are brought to an area that has none of those things. Um, Babylon wasn't just neutral. It was hostile to uh, the outwardly religious life that had existed in Jerusalem. I mean, imagine what that would be like to be in that kind of situation, that kind of tension, that kind of pressure. So I want us to consider uh, from these guys' story what we can learn uh, about living faithfully as followers of Christ today in a secular culture. And I want to focus on four things in our, uh, in our sermon today, okay? The first thing we see from uh, the story of uh, Daniel, Rakshak, and Benny is uh, that faithful exiles work faithfully for the common good. Faithful exiles work faithfully for the common good. I mean, we see that these four young men embraced their opportunity in Babylon. Uh, They worked hard. They they excelled in their education. And what's amazing is that not everything, (laughs) far from it actually, but not, not, not everything that they would have been taught in Babylon University would have been in keeping with God's laws. Uh, We know some of what was part of their education. Things like divination and astrology, forbidden in God's law. Uh, But these young men were able to eat the meat of their education and spit out the bones. They were able to have discernment. They learned, they thrived, they grew. And then verse 20 told us that in every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians, enchanters, that were in all his kingdom. They didn't just know God's law. They knew all of what was being taught by their Babylonian education. They really worked hard, and they thrived in this secular, even hostile, culture. Then after they had learned and developed, they served faithfully. As you go through the book of Daniel, you see that these men are serving in the government which had captured them and was oppressing their people. They did good through their work. They helped to govern uh, those in the empire. And over the course of Daniel's life, he works for three different secular governments. And in each government, he is respected, thought highly of, because of his competency in his work. Daniel, uh, Rakshak, and Benny did not have the posture of either insurrectionists seeking to overthrow the culture or separatist, trying to remove themselves from the culture. Why not? 
I mean, why not have one of those postures? I mean, Babylon was wicked, evil. I mean, that seems like a natural response. Why not try to overthrow that which is evil? Why not try to separate yourself from that which is wicked? Well, why they are not doing it is they are obeying directly God's intentions for his people. Um, It's important when we study scripture to study all of scripture, to see how it fits together and tells the whole story. And we have uh, another book of the Bible, Jeremiah, which is a letter from a prophet in Israel writing to those who have been exiled. So Jeremiah is writing to the Jewish people in Babylon, and he's giving them God's instructions for them about how they are to live in exile. So I'm going to read Jeremiah 21, uh, verse 1, and then verses 4 through 7. Uh, Jeremiah wrote this to them. He said, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the, the prophets, and the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And here's what he says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. God is instructing his people to live within the Babylonian culture as exiles who work for the common good, seeking the welfare of the city and even praying for this city, this wicked city, this evil city, this city that had come and captured them and was seeking to assimilate them. They are to work for its good and pray for its good. And so that's what Daniel uh, Rakshak and Benny are doing. They're obeying these words. Now, Jeremiah in his letter goes on uh, just a few verses after this and, uh, and tells, he utters one of the most famous uh, statements, one of the most widely known scriptures and often misinterpreted uh, scriptures, where he says, I know the plans I have for you, uh, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That verse is often said when we think, man, I know life's going hard right now. May I lost my job, but God has good plans for me. I know another job is just around the corner. God has plans for my future. Or I know this relationship didn't work out, but I know God has good plans for me. That just around the corner is another relationship, plans for a future and a hope. And that's not what this verse means. This verse is written to people in exile who in their lifetime are not going to leave exile. That's the message of Jeremiah. You're going to be here for 70 years. You're not coming back to Jerusalem. In your exile, I have good plans for you, plans for a future, plans for a hope. And I'm not done with my plan through your people. Your children will come back to Israel. That's the context of this verse, of God having a future and a hope for his people. It's written to those in exile, that we can embrace God's goodness even while living in exile. And the New Testament continues this teaching. A matter of fact, I would argue one of the prevalent themes of Scripture is about God's people living as an exile people, a people who are not in the majority, but in the minority, and how we are to be faithful ambassadors of Christ's kingdom as such. Jesus, in one of his most famous teachings, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in Matthew 5, he, he tells his followers that you are to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, a city on a hill. So Jesus is saying this to the church. He's not saying it to Israel. He's not saying it to any earthly nation. It's followers of Christ. It's the church who are salt, light, a city on a hill. Uh, uh, Tim Keller refers to this community that is described as the countercultural community for the common good. That's what the church is. The countercultural community for the common good. We as the church do live counterculturally. There must be a distinctness to who we are and to our way of life. If we don't live as salt, if we aren't distinct, we're no good to the world. It's only as we're salt that we're of any benefit. 
So there are many things about our beliefs, our behaviors, that will always be at odds with the world around us. And if they're not, um, we've compromised. But we are distinct for this purpose, to be beneficial. We are the salt of the earth. See, salt is a preservative. Salt helps maintain, uh, and so, so, so meat does not go to rot. It doesn't spoil. And followers of Christ living in a secular world um, can't necessarily transform it, but they can help preserve it. Only God can transform. But there's a preservative nature to God's people living uh, for the good of the community in which God has placed them. And then uh, 1 Peter 2, 11 to 12, which we looked at two weeks ago, also has this theme where Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The clear picture from Scripture is that God's people are exiles, that we are living in a world that is not yet all that God intends it to be, but we are part of the eternal kingdom, and therefore we represent the values of that eternal kingdom in the here and now. Now, friends, in in living as exiles, it is tempting and it is easy to adopt an attitude of either opposition or separation instead of blessing. It's so easy as an exile who's being mistreated to either be opposed to the culture around us or separated from the culture around us instead of being a blessing to the culture around us. It's easy to be negative and extreme because the culture can be evil. It can be wicked. We're not wrong about that. The question is, how do we respond? Um, uh, A couple weeks back, as we were looking at the Evangelical Citizen series, I sent out some follow-up resources in the newsletter. And one of those resources was an article uh, written by an EFCA pastor titled, Afraid and Angry. And um, he wrote this article after an email he received from a person in his church who forwarded him a sermon from another pastor, which pastors always love, by the way. So he gets this sermon from another pastor, and the the title of the sermon was, Why I'm Afraid and Why I'm Angry. And it it was an election year, and this guy said, I am very afraid for our nation, and I'm very angry about what's taking place. And that was the title of his message, Why I'm Afraid and Why I'm Angry. Now, he was not wrong about some of the observations he was making about the culture. What was wrong was the response. Is that the response that Christians are called to? Afraid and angry. So in this article, this pastor proposed two alternatives, that when we look at the culture around us and are tempted to be either fearful or angry, he said we need to do two things, look up and look out. That we look up, um, Psalm 2, the nation's rage, but the Lord sits in heaven on his throne and laughs. That God is not threatened by the chaos of this world. His purposes are secure forever. And so we look up through the scriptures, we remind ourselves of the unshakable kingdom of God that we are part of. That gives us confidence and security, even in places like Babylon. And then we look out. That we look at ways that we can live and bless and serve, even in light of being in a world that can be evil, wicked, and chaotic. And and in being a blessing to others, we give others a reason to ask, why? What hope do you have? Our world understands fear and anger. Our world does not understand peace and hope in the midst of chaos. So we give people a reason to ask why. Friends, uh, exiles, uh, followers of Jesus Christ, we are to live working for the common good of the world around us. That's one of the ways we live faithfully as an exile. Secondly, uh, faithful exiles respectfully resist cultural assimilation. Faithful exiles respectfully resist cultural assimilation. Listen, the Babylonian culture was not neutral. (laughs) Uh, Far, far from it. They weren't just saying, hey, come on in, let's just share some ideas about what's best of how to live. I'll listen to your idea, I'll share mine. Uh, This culture is anything but neutral. There is great pressure to conform and to assimilate. Our culture is not neutral either. There is great pressure far greater than we realize, to conform and to assimilate. 
And it's greater than we, than we realize because our natural human tendency to conform is greater than we realize. This is just how we're made as human beings. We are social creatures. And we, we, we want to be able to relate. And so we end up compromising, conforming, without even realizing it. Uh, there was a, a famous study done one time by a guy named uh, Solomon Ash back in 1951. And this guy ran an experiment on conformity. And so he had uh, someone come in uh, to a room and he showed them a picture. I think we have the picture here. Uh, it's got like a, a series of lines on it. No lines? All right, well, I can easily describe it for you. It's not that complicated, all right? It's a picture that has one line and then another picture that has three lines, all of different lengths. And the simple question was, um, which of these three lines is closest in size to the first one? And the answer was obvious, all right? There's one that's way longer, one that's way shorter, and one that's the same size. It was not a difficult question. And so the person would come in, but what the person didn't know is that the other nine people that were brought into the room were all plants. And those nine people would answer first. Now the correct answer to the question was C. The, the C is, the, is by far the line that is closest to the original line. But all nine people would say A. A is the one closest. And 75% of the time, people would, the one person would say A. They would think, well, maybe I'm just looking at this wrong. Maybe I'm wrong about this. 75% of the time, they would just go along with what the previous nine said. See, as human beings, we are prone to being conformed through social pressure. That's just the way we are. Now, Daniel, uh, Rack, Shack, and Benny, uh, they faced great pressure to conform and be assimilated into Babylonian culture, to adopt the values of Babylon. But they determined that what they would not that while they were there, while they would work for the common good, they would not be assimilated by the culture. So we see them do two things, to respectfully resist Babylon's attempts to assimilate them. Two things they did. We see that they privately maintained their Jewish names, and they resolved not to eat the king's food. They, they maintained in private their Jewish names and resolved not to eat the king's food. Well, let's consider those two things. First, the names. Um, when they came to Babylon, they were given new names. Um, and throughout the narrative in Daniel, um, you'll see that often they are referred to by their new names um, from the king or from somebody else in Babylonian office. They referred to them using their Babylonian names. But when Daniel writes this account, he always refers to their Jewish names. That when they were together, when they were in private, oh, there it is. Thank you, there's the line, yes. It's pretty accurate, isn't it? Three lines, all right. Um, when those guys were together and in private, they called each other by their true names, by the names that they were given by their parents. And this was a form of resistance because they were reminding each other of the truth behind their names. Um, they weren't called these names just because they sounded nice. These names all meant something. I mean, listen to what their names meant. Daniel means God is judged. And they needed to remember that, that God saw what was taking place and he would call to account the Babylonians. They were not judge. And so they had to entrust themselves to God who is judge. So every time Daniel is referred to, there's a reminder, God is judge. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. In the middle of being forcibly removed from their home and never going back, they're reminded that we serve a God who is gracious and good, who wants to bless us with his steadfast love. Even in exile, Yahweh is gracious. They needed to remember that. Mishael means who is what God is. Who is what God is? They look at the grandeur, the power, the wealth of Babylon, and they're tempted to be overwhelmed. Babylon can create nothing. Babylon would eventually fall. Babylon is not eternal. Only God is creator. Only God is eternal. Who is what God is? And they need to remember that. And Azariah means Yahweh is a helper. They were not sent there alone. God was with them, and that comes out in this story. Yahweh, the creator, the redeemer, the delivering God, is with them in exile. 
and they needed to remember that. So calling each other by their Jewish names in private was a form of resistance. You know, they don't freak out. They don't yell at their captors. You know, don't call me by that name. But in private, they are reminding each other what is true. Now, we gather weekly on a Sunday in part to remember who we are because we also live in a culture that tries to rename us. It tries to make us identify around things other than the identity God gives us. We live in a culture which wants to make, uh, name us and identify us around our nationality uh, or around our sexuality or around our gender or our race or according to our vocation or according to our social or financial status. But as followers of Christ, we refuse to let any of those things become the source of our identity. Those things may be descriptive of us, but they don't define us. You see, we could be American, um, from any other nation of the world, and be in the kingdom of God. Someone could be same-sex attracted, or opposite-sex attracted, and then faithfully follow Jesus Christ according to his commands. Our attractions don't define us. Uh, someone could be a man or a woman, be of any race on the planet. Those things don't define us. They describe us. What defines us is what God says about us, which is why in 1 Peter 2, when Peter writes to the exiles, he starts with identity, beloved. I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Let those words sink in deep. First of all, beloved. If you are here today, I want you to know, you are here today. (laughs) You are beloved. I know it kind of sounds a little just touchy-feely, but one of the deepest longings of the human heart is to be loved. And if you are made by a God who is himself love, um, this God has sent Jesus Christ to redeem you in love. I mean, despite how how hard life might be, God loves you. You are beloved. That is is core to our identity. We are beloved sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ. We're beloved. We're sojourners. What that means is we're on a trip. We're headed somewhere. Um, And where we're headed is immeasurably good. So we don't look around us and have to say, man, is this all? No, it's not all. We're told that we are co-heirs with Christ, heirs of the future kingdom. And we know that there is coming a day when there's no more sin, suffering, even death. We're headed somewhere immeasurably good. We're sojourners. That's an identity. We are exiles. Meaning, we need to get used to being Uh, not at home. This is not home in terms of this nation, this culture. This is not home. We are exiles. God's kingdom is our home. See, that identity shapes us. So as followers of Jesus, we um, don't let the culture name us. We let God name us. And we respectfully resist all other forms of definition. Second thing I want to look at here is uh, the food that uh, Daniel, Rakshak, and Benny uh, resolved not to eat. Um, they, were, they were given an amazing menu. It said that they were provided from the king's table. So like the best of the food in all Babylon, uh, the best of wine in all Babylon being provided for them. And it says they resolved not to defile themselves and eat of the king's table. Why? Why, why did they decide not to do this? Well, a, a few options have been offered. Um, Some people have said, well, they didn't eat of it because Jewish dietary restrictions forbid it. Now, it's true. There was a lot of restrictions in the Old Testament about the kind of food uh, a Jewish person could or could not eat. The thing is, this doesn't really fit in eating cleanly. Um, While some of the meat may have been considered defiled, um, the wine certainly wasn't. Um, Wine was not prohibited under Old Testament covenant law. Um, It was celebrated. So it, it doesn't really fit in that that was the one reason why they didn't do this. Others have said, well, maybe it wasn't the dietary restrictions. Maybe it was the fact that this meat and uh, wine would have been offered first to a pagan idol before it was then given 
to the table. That was the practice of the day. Um, and again, that may, may, be, may be part of the argument. The problem, though, is the vegetables would have been offered too. <laughs> so why would they eat the veggies and not the meat and the wine? Others have said, well, you know what? These guys really are the first vegetarians. They wanted a healthy diet. As a matter of fact, if you search, if you Google online, you probably can find the Daniel diet. And uh, some people today try to say this was a you know, God's way of telling us we should be vegetarian. Well, maybe that's a good way to eat, but that's not what's going on here, all right? Uh, what's going on here is that uh, these guys were engaging in a spiritual practice, a spiritual discipline of resistance. They don't want to get sucked into Babylon's value systems. Uh, they don't want to become defiled and corrupted by Babylonian culture. So they have developed a spiritual practice of resistance. See, the path of cultural compromise and then assimilation rarely happens through an overt ideological argument. As if one day their captor would come in and say, you know what, Yahweh's not God, the Babylonian gods are in charge. And they would say, mm, okay. It's not going to happen through just like one like, ideological argument. Cultural compromise and then assimilation happens as we unthinkingly enjoy the benefits of ungodliness. That's how it happens, one bite at a time. As we unthinkingly enjoy the benefits of ungodliness. See, compromise and assimilation happen as we start to enjoy Babylon and therefore start thinking of Babylon as home. Now, it's unlikely that someone's going to come to you this week uh, with something so overt as saying, you know what, you should serve money instead of God. That's what you should do. And if you did hear that, you'd think, well, no, that's stupid. But I'll tell you what's going to happen this week. Through advertising, through social media, through American consumerism, you are going to have a materialistic fantasy dangled in front of you that is absolutely trying to conform you to the belief that you should serve money instead of God. Because friends, without a doubt, money is one of the gods of our culture. And every time we unthinkingly take a bite from that fantasy meal, we are headed in the direction of compromise and assimilation. Now, there are many other cultural gods. And one of the questions we should ask as Christians is, what are the gods of our culture? What are the, the values out there that are not from Scripture? We need to be aware of those. Um, as an aside, if you're looking for some ways to consider that, uh, two good books to consider. Uh, one, uh, uh, John Tyson wrote a book called Beautiful Resistance, The Joy of Conviction in a Culture of Compromise. Uh, second one, Tim Keller wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and The Only Hope That Matters. You see, we need to be aware of the gods of our culture. Since we live in a culture that is actively trying to conform us, we need spiritual practices of resistance if we are going to be faithful. Um, let, me, uh, let me offer uh, a couple here. Uh, the first one actually comes from uh, an author named Justin Early, who wrote a book called The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction. He's got a, he's got a great quote in this book. L listen to it. He says, Our world is full of a thousand invisible habits of fear, anger, anxiety, and envy that we unconsciously and consciously adopt. Should we do nothing, um, we will be uh, taught to love the very things that tear us apart. So we must take up the fight, open our eyes, to the way media forms us in fear and hate, the way screens form us in absence, and see the way excess and laziness train us to love ourselves above all else. So in his book, he actually develops a few spiritual practices, disciplines for Christians in the modern age. Uh, one of them I've, um, I, tr I am trying to adopt well. I will say I'm probably uh, at a D-plus level, all right? Uh, but one of them is, is he simply calls Scripture Before Phone. It's the discipline of waking up every morning and before picking up the device to look at the news of the day or the latest text or latest email, instead of doing that first, I will first look at the scripture. I'm going to first let God's word form me, greet me, be reminded of who I am before this. Um, I think it's a really important discipline in our day. It's so easy to be formed by other messages. See, that's a discipline that pushes back. It's a form of resistance. I'm going to let God's truth be primary in my day. Scripture before phone. 
Another uh, common practice that followers of Christ have done for ages is the practice of financial giving. It's why every Sunday we offer the opportunity for the offering. It's not just to fund the religious uh, institution, the organization, the efforts of the church. It's first and foremost a heart-shaping practice. God will provide for his church. But we as followers of Christ have to let God shape us. So every time we give money, scriptures tell us where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. We are forming our hearts to love the things that God loves. So giving is a spiritual form of resistance. I am not going to let consumerism take over. I'm not going to let materialism take over. I'm going to seek first God's kingdom. And so that's a tangible way that we resist the cultural values around us. Faithful exiles respectfully resist cultural assimilation. All right. How are you all doing? Still awake? I actually, I ended early a couple weeks ago. I was chastised for that. So if I go longer today, you can blame the people that talk to me, all right? It's not, it, won't be, it won't be too long. Um, thirdly, faithful exiles are witnesses to the living God. Faithful exiles are witnesses to the living God. Uh, their respectful resistance in this story caused other people to recognize the power, provision, and goodness of God. I mean, the king's steward saw how God blessed them with health and skill and wisdom. What they did created an opportunity for God to become known. And as the story of Daniel progresses, so does the witness of Daniel, Rakshak, and Benny. Uh, the king comes to know in this story, not just that these young men are good, moral, competent guys, good guys in society, but he comes to know in this story that it's the living God who gave Daniel understanding and the ability to interpret dreams. He comes to know it's the living God who stands in the fire with his people. He comes to know it's the living God who shuts the mouths of lions. You see, the story goes way beyond Daniel just being a good guy. And it points to the living God who saves his people. Faithful exiles are witnesses to the living God. See, in the same way that Daniel, uh, Hananiah, uh, Azariah and Mishael were faithful and were witnesses, we can be too. And it starts in small ways. You know, we starts as being people who are faithfully working for the common good, people who bless their neighbors, people who work diligently in their vocations, people who serve the community through coaching, volunteering, and service, people who uh, continue to bless even in a difficult area. But that's not enough. We must also be people who respectfully resist cultural compromise. People who are not identified by the names of this culture. People who therefore may be viewed a little bit odd and different at times, even sometimes being called, uh, being on the wrong side of history. People who demonstrate the wisdom and the character of God in their generosity, in their sexual fidelity, in refusing to gossip or slander, in avoiding drama and outbursts of anger, all those things we're called to do in scripture. As we live those out, we're giving opportunity to point to the living God. Because people will see that difference. And when we're asked for the reason for the hope that lies within us, we have the opportunity to say, Jesus, Jesus, he's the reason. Faithful exiles are witnesses to the living God. Well, if that's how we're called to live, that describes a faithful exile, I think the big question is, how do we actually live that way? I mean, how can we live faithfully? I mean, if we're honest, that's really challenging. Now, quite often when we come to these stories of the Bible, very inspirational stories, I mean, Daniel is one of the best figures in all of the Bible. We actually don't really see him do anything wrong in the whole story. So when we come to stories like this, we're tempted to say, be like Daniel. And he's one of the good guys. And, and I think we have a a method of discipleship that I would call the Be Like Mike method. Do you remember uh, this ad commercial, this ad, ad campaign back in the 1990s? Uh, I, I, I thought of this this week and immediately the jingle came up in my head. And, and you guys remember that? Sometimes I dream that he is me. He's how I dream to be. Uh, he goes on to say, I dream I move, I dream I groove, like Mike, if I could be like Mike. And this generated uh, all kinds of attention and sales through this famous ad campaign. 
And I think we're tempted to come to these kind of stories and apply the be like Mike formula. And here it is. Powerful example plus effort equals character. Get a good enough example, apply enough effort, and it will result in good character. I got some sad news for you. Despite imitating Michael Jordan in my driveway, I was not like Mike. It did not work. It doesn't matter how many games I watched, how many bottles of Gatorade I bought, I was not going to be like Mike. It would have taken a miracle, a major transformation of DNA for me to be like Mike. And in a similar way, we will never live like Daniel by just looking at Daniel, seeing what an amazing figure he was, and then trying hard to be like him. It's just as hopeless, if not more, than trying to be like Mike. Thankfully, we have so much more. We have more than a good example and more than greater effort to lean upon. See, the Bible is not primarily a book about you and what you should do. It's a book about God and what he has done for you in Jesus. See, faith, this is our fourth principle of today. Faithful exiles are empowered by faith in Jesus to live like Daniel. And that middle part is absolutely key. Apart from faith in Jesus, this is hopeless. Um, when we look through the book of Daniel, what we see is that it is pointing us towards Jesus. Jesus' favorite title for himself actually comes from the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel 7, 13 to 14, Daniel writes this, and Jesus refers to it. Daniel wrote, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And that was Jesus' favorite title for himself. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples, nations, languages that should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And now you see why people got so upset when Jesus used that title. That's what he's claiming was true of him. He's the one in charge of the kingdom that is eternal. And he is. And Daniel is pointing us to him. But not just through these verses. Actually, through Daniel's character and how he lived. Daniel himself points us to Jesus as the greater Daniel. Like Daniel, Jesus also was, in some ways, an exile. Jesus left his home. Philippians 2 tells us he laid aside his glory and was born as a humble human being. And he came and lived as a, in a poor family. Uh, this was not his home. Heaven, the glory of God, that's his home. He was in exile and living among us. And like Daniel, even though he was in exile, Jesus worked for the common good. He healed people. He taught people. He fed people. He delivered people. He blessed people. Like Daniel, Jesus confounded people uh, as a young man with his great wisdom and understanding. And like Daniel, Jesus resisted compromise. The religious establishment tried to get him to compromise. He refused. Rome tried to get him to compromise. He refused. His disciples, his family, the devil himself tried to get Jesus to compromise. And to everyone, he said no. He remained faithful to who he was and how God was calling him to live. And like Daniel, Jesus trusted God even when it cost him. And it cost him far more than it cost Daniel. When we look at Jesus, we see a greater Daniel who loves and died for the very people who failed to live like Daniel. Now, you might be here today and be convicted, feel convicted that you have let the culture in one way, shape, or form form you. Um, matter of fact, if you don't feel that, you probably aren't looking hard enough. <laughs> Friends, my invitation today is not to, to recognize your failure and then try harder to be like Daniel. It's to recognize your inability and then look to Jesus. Only through faith in him can we be empowered to live as faithful exiles in a secular world. Only Jesus can give us the right motivation. If we try to do this on our own, we'll ultimately become self-righteous when we kind of succeed. If we can be faithful, like kind of live different from the world around us, but it's in our own strength, we inevitably start feeling better and superior to those around us, saying, why can't you get your act together? And we don't have love. 
See, only Jesus can give us the ability to live righteously, but not self-righteously. Jesus gives us that power, that right motivation. Then he gives us, through the Holy Spirit, the ability just not to run away or try to fight every time, but to bless even those that curse. The Spirit gives us a new ability to live that we could not, in and of ourselves, uh, live that way. And lastly, only Jesus can give us mercy and grace when we fall short and we will fall short. In one way or another, we are not going to live this perfectly. We are not going to live perfectly like Daniel. And we need someone who has promised to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Jesus has promised just that. Only in Jesus do we have this new ability to begin to live faithfully as exiles. So in closing here, as followers of Christ living in the United States of America, uh, we are to fix our eyes on the greater Daniel, the one who has lived the life we should have lived, who has died the death we should have died, and has risen to give us his life. And he has now ascended to the right hand of the throne of God where he rules over all. And he's sending us now to be a blessing to others in our communities, working for the common good. In what ways is God calling you this week to be a blessing in the workplace, in the school, in the neighborhood? We must resist all forms of cultural compromise. What ways must you resist compromise in your life, in your sphere of influence? And he's calling us to be a witness to the living God. What opportunities do you have to clearly point to Jesus as the reason for your way of life? Will you stand with me? Let's close in prayer together. Lord God, we are so thankful uh, that you have loved us enough to come for us. Uh, thank you, Lord, um, that you didn't just send us uh, a book, uh, but you sent us a person. And uh, Lord, we are so thankful that Jesus in flesh and blood has uh, lived um, our story. That you, you, Jesus, you know the challenges of living as an exile uh, in, in a foreign area. You know the pressures, the temptations uh, that come with that. And Jesus, you have succeeded uh, where we have failed. And despite that, Lord, you have loved us and you continue to love us and you have died for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to put our trust fully in you. God, I pray for us this week. Would you give us power by your spirit uh, to live faithfully in our places of work, in our schools, uh, in, our, in our relational circles. God, I pray that we would be uh, faithful witnesses to the living God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.